Good morning. Thanks for joining me today for our Wednesdays in the Word. I'm so glad you could be with me as we continue on verse by verse in our study of the book of Romans, seeking to unfold what God has gone to the trouble to reveal to us. Today I'm picking up our study in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Let me read them to you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. If you were with me last time, we were looking in the preceding verses at verses 9 to 11. In fact, we were looking at them as a grammar lesson, not to step away from the scriptures and the wonder of the scriptures, but to frame it in a grammar study. Because those verses were telling us about five amazing, wonderful, praiseworthy outcomes of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us, the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life. And the tense systems of those verses help to underscore the wonder of it. We saw that there was a past tense. We have been justified by his blood. As he shed his blood on the cross, it created what was necessary to justify us, to make us right. When we responded to the gospel, at that point in time in history, we were justified made right with God. The credited righteousness of Christ became ours. His perfect life was credited to us. We were justified by his blood, a past tense. So now, if we've responded to the gospel, we are justified, continuing to be, because of his work on our behalf. We also saw there was a future tense that the verses gave us in verses 9 to 11, and that is that we shall be saved from the wrath of God. As Hebrews tells us, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. There's an accountability for all mankind. All of us will stand before God. And as we do so, the issue of our sin must be accounted for. God is calling us for account in that. And the wrath of God is directed towards sin. Sin's actually going to be the focus of our study today as we have these times together. But understand, God is telling us something about the future. We shall be saved then. Meaning, you and I have passed out of judgment into life. If we've responded to the gospel, we don't need to be afraid of that inevitable accountability because we've passed out of that accountability as the perfect life of Christ has been credited to us. We won't have to answer for our sins because our sacrifice has already been made. We're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a future dimension to all of these wonderful outcomes of the cross. Another of the past outcomes is it says we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. <laughs> Meaning in the past, as we responded to the gospel, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross made it possible for us to be reconciled with God. The scripture says all of us are separated from God due to our sin. We are hostile, in fact, enemies of God is the way the scripture puts it. But as we turn to Christ, we who were enemies have now been made friends, reconciled. 
2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 to 20 tells us much more about that reconciliation. And God says, listen, remind yourself that when you responded to the gospel at that point in time in your past, you were now reconciled to God because a possible, it was possible to be because of what Christ did. Then he talks about a future in a present tense, and he says, we shall be saved by his life. Meaning if I've responded to the gospel, if I've responded to the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life, I shall be saved as a continuing ongoing reality. Why? Because Jesus Christ is my high priest. Jesus Christ is now my advocate, my defense lawyer before the Lord. He always lives to intercede for me, as the scripture puts it. Now, I stumble at times, and so do you. But if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, he defends us for sin before the Father by continuing to cover us by the blood of the cross. He is not defending us by saying, well, give him a break because he was tired. or whatever. No, 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 it's not that. It's that, yeah, he sinned. But he turned to me in repentance and faith, and therefore my blood continues to cover his sin. Isn't it wonderful to have a high priest? We are saved by his life, his continuing work. Finally, he said, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're able as an ongoing basis, as an ongoing verb, to rejoice. And we saw that that word means to be able to hold our head up high rather than be bowed down. We, we can hold our head up high because we're covered by Christ. Not because we're confident in ourselves, but we are confident in him. Wonderful, wonderful truths. And the grammar of it, the verb tenses, help to drive it home to us. I hope that was useful. Go back and review that if, uh, in the much more extended study we did on that at some time. Well, today, as we move forward in these verses, starting in verse 12, we are looking more at the issue of sin and the understanding of sin. The Bible is very clear about what sin is, where sin came from, what sin does, and what the solution to sin is all about. But it's only in the scriptures that we understand such things about sin. Only the scriptures help us to understand the answer to sin's dilemma in the human race. In our study of the book of Romans, the whole first four chapters nearly, were given over to underscoring for us the reality of sin, the reality of our universal sin, the reality of how all of us are sinners and separated from God, how all of us are guilty and therefore all of us need a solution. And a solution we can't cause for ourselves, God had to provide for us. And the solution, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross, as we've been examining. So the scripture is very plain about the, all of that. But I want to pick up today, as the passage does, and begin to look more at this problem of sin. Even as I acknowledge that I am a sinner before God, I still have some questions as to what is sin really, in what way had it come to affect my life? How does it continue to affect my life? Where did it come from? <clears throat> Let's look at some of the answers to those as God's word unfolds it for us. At its heart, at the essence of it, the word sin 
describes the act of rebelling against God's purpose and plan. Specifically and personally, rebelling against God's purpose and plan for me and for you as an individual human being. To sin is to reject God's ways. Sin, as the Bible helps us to understand it, is not first and foremost a moral question or an ethical question. Now, sin certainly has moral implications and ethical implications. And by that I mean sin can often be used, and the scripture does use it, to refer to a to a sinful action, a, a thieving, a murdering, a sexual immorality, or something of that sort. So there are moral dimensions to it. But it's not essentially, and at its heart, a moral issue. It is essentially, at its heart, a spiritual issue. It has to do with how we respond to the God who created us. God created us for relationship with him. He created us to be living in vital union with him, fulfilling his purpose and plan as our God, as our Lord. And sin at its heart is a refusal to be that way, a rejection of his purpose, a rejection of his directions, a rejection of his ownership over our lives. Sin is therefore first and foremost a spiritual question, not a moral question. Now, sin will bring about moral, ethical failure. So there is a dimension to it that has to do with morality. But it is at its heart something much deeper. It is a rejection of God's purpose and plan. By the way, that's why the scripture summarizes what the greatest of the commandments is, and it's not a moral issue. It says the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength meaning to make him first in our lives, to live in dependency upon him, to fulfill his purpose and plan. And all of us have sinned. All of us stand guilty before God on that basis. Sin, at its heart, is essentially a spiritual question. Now, this spiritual reality of sin which is universal, as we've seen so far in the book of Romans, all stand guilty as sinners before God. This choice of sin, this essence of sin, reflects itself in two fundamental ways in the human condition. This attitude of sin shows itself, first of all, by choosing purposely to reject God's laws. In the scriptures, the written word, we find God's laws laid out for us. But the scripture also tells us earlier in the book of Romans that he has written many of those laws upon our hearts. And human beings choose to reject and rebel against those things written on their conscience. As well as, as they come to understand what God's written word is, to reject what God says there as well. And to still live according to their own direction. That's why sin is described as a breaking of the law, a refusal to align with what God has revealed as the eternal realities of righteousness and holiness before him. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 5 put it this way, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, because sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. The breaking of God's laws. As he reveals them in the scriptures, as he has written them on our heart, in our conscience, the breaking of the law is what sin is all about. It is lawlessness, a determination not to live under the law. So that's the first way, and certainly there's many moral implications of that sort of decision, because by breaking his law, we break what he presents to us as the righteous and holy way, and therefore, by definition, we become morally corrupt. But sin also means that we decide to reject God's rightful role in our life. We reject his direction, his law, and we reject him as Lord. We reject his rightful role in our life. That is the heart of what sin is. Isaiah 55, Isaiah 5, verse 6, puts 53, 6, puts it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have altered everyone to his own way, not God's way, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us have made a determination to reject God's rightful authority over our life. We've made a decision to reject what he's revealed in his word and in our conscience about his righteous law. And we've made a determination to reject his rightful role as Lord in our lives. Sin, therefore, at its heart, is a determination to take over our life, to do our will, not his will, to live under our direction, not his direction. It is to decide that you and I have the right to the ownership over our life, not God. Do you see the heart of sin? That's why I say sin, as the Bible describes it to us, is not first and foremost a moral ethical question. It is a spiritual question. And even as we differ from one another in terms of our moral corruptions, the human race does not differ from one another in their determination to rebel against God's law, both written and then put in our conscience, and to rebel against God's rightful role to go our own way, not his way, to break, therefore, the greatest of the commandments. Do you see the universality of what sin is completely? Now, let's move on. As we come to understand that that's at the heart of things, that it's that which is at the center point of what sin is all about, God reminds us that this Sin, this rejection of his laws and rejection of his rightful role and to live and surrender to it, that reality of sin actually existed in the universe even prior to the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. To put it another way, God reminds us that we were not the first to rebel against God, to rebel against his ways, to rebel against his lordship in our life. <laughs> the Bible reveals to us that Satan was the first one to choose sin, to choose to rebel, to choose to go his own way 
instead of God's way. And this sin on the part of Satan took place before his efforts to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. The scripture unfolds for us that sin at its heart is not merely a human condition, but it is the condition even of the angelic world, or it can potentially be, as it was reflected in Satan himself, the devil. He rebelled against God's purpose in creating him. He rejected God's purpose, and as a result, rejected God's laws and rejected God's intentions. Now, the Bible introduces us to that reality, but it doesn't give us an exhaustive picture of it. It helps us to understand, in fact, that happened, and therefore we kind of know where sin came from. We can sort of see the essence of what sin is all about. But we don't know the whole story, and I believe God had reasons for not revealing everything about it to us, because I don't think we could understand a lot of the dimensions of it. But what we can understand, God has chosen to reveal to us. Let's look at what God has said about sin as it was finding itself initially in the enemy of our souls, Satan. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we read these words. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy sinning to do away with that whole attitude, spiritual attitude of rebellion against God and rejection of God's ways. So there we get an insight into things, you see. <laughs> the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And Christ came to offset the effects and the works of that enemy of our souls. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 8, in verse 44, we read these words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, it's natural for him to lie. It's not natural for him to tell the truth. That is the picture of the enemy of our souls. He is a murderer from the beginning. One whose very presence and whose efforts stand in stark contrast to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He stands in stark contrast to God's word. As John 17 tells us, thy word is truth. Do you see the picture? The enemy of our souls. Now, Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 13 tells us a little bit, a little bit of the veil removed here, and says that Satan, the devil, was not always a rebel. Listen to these words. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Because Satan was not created fallen, but there was a point where that unrighteousness, that determination to reject God's purpose, to reject God's will, to be one's own master, showed up and became the characteristic of his life. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, and I won't read that to you exactly, but, uh, well, I think I will read it to you, but I won't expand on it. We find a picture, uh, many of the biblical scholars believe it to be, and I think they're correct, of 
the decision on the part of Satan, who was blameless in his ways from the beginning, but then decided to rebel, to get a picture of what he did, what that rebellion was all about. He rejected God's purpose and plan in favor of his own will rather than God's will. Listen to these words. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the clouds, the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, there's a lot that could be said about those verses. I'm not going to take time today to do it. But I want you to understand that phrase, I will, because that's the repeated phrase. And remember the essence of sin, a determination to be I will, to do our will, not God's, to reject God's purposes in favor of our own ownership and determination. Remember, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way to I will as a focus of life instead of God's will as a focus of life. This is the essence of Satan. And therefore, it should not be surprising to us that he who is the author of those attitudes seeks to foster those attitudes in humanity. But he didn't begin with humanity. Satan began to try to foster those attitudes within the others, angels within the angelic order that God had created. Now, Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 tells us, And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Meaning a third of the angelic order, I believe that's what it means, uh, joined with Satan in his temptation of them to become I-wills <laughs> instead of surrendered to the purpose and plan of the God who created them. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 it says, For God... For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, meaning, and that passage goes on to talk, if God didn't spare the angels, he's not going to spare rebellious, sinful mankind either. But the point being that angels did rebel against God following Satan. Revelation chapter 12 says in verses 4 to 7, now war rose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Talking about yet a future, ultimate rejection and pushing of Satan out of the presence of God and his fallen angels as well. A terrible thing will occur on the earth when that happens, uh, but that's a topic for another day. But the point here is that sin had its origin in him and his response, and he not only personally rebelled against God, but then sought to bring about rebellion in the angelic order. Getting back to our purposes in verses 12 to 14 of Romans 5, we discover he then turned his attention to humanity. Sin came into the world through Adam's choice, Adam and Eve's choice. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through that sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. After personally rebelling against God, and then personally 
the, being the instigator of the rebellion of many angels against God, Satan turned his attention to Adam and Eve, that first flush, the first fruit of humanity, and sought to tempt them to join in the same rebellion against God's purpose and plan, to sin, to reject God's ways, to reject God's role. And he did it in the Garden of Eden. That's why, by the way, John chapter 8 that I read to you says that he is the enemy of our souls. He is the murderer from the beginning because his interest is to lead us to disaster, to get us to join in that hopeless rebellion of which ultimately judgment is the outcome. And he continues today to seek to tempt men and women into this same disaster, to continue to murder the human race. Pretty sobering, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what he's telling us here. In Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam and Eve created by God in the garden, in perfect relationship with God, fulfilling God's purpose, fulfilling his call on their life, not rebelling against why he created them, not rejecting his rightful role, seeking to be in fellowship with God. But Genesis 3 shows what happened as Satan focused his efforts. Sin as a power and Satan as a tempter was there in the garden. By the way, that's one of the reasons the new heavens and the new earth that we're told about in Revelation chapter 21 and in Second Peter uh, in other places seems so wonderful to me because it will be a place where there is no tempter and where sin no longer exists. <laughs> it existed and the tempter was there even in the Garden of Eden. The future new heavens and new earth will not have that. Praise God. But for now, sin and temptation is alive and well on this earth. As Cain was Reminded by God in Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching at the door. <laughs> Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation to reject God's word and rightful role. So they both broke God's command in terms of eating that fruit, but also rejected God's rightful role of ownership over them. Because part of Satan's temptation, you remember in Genesis 3, was that if you do this, you can become your own gods. You don't need to be living in surrender to the God who created you. Satan tempted Adam and Eve into sin. To reject God's commandments, to mistrust God's word, to mistrust God's purpose for their lives, and to become the masters of their own destiny. Adam and Eve succumbed. Humanity ever since has succumbed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I fell prey of the same temptation, and so did you. And therefore, as Isaiah 53 put it, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one of us to our own way. We might have differed from one another in our moral failure. We didn't differ in turning our own way and rejecting God's rightful place and rightful role in our life. 
Well, there's a lot more to say in these verses and in the verses that come, but I felt we needed to take an excursion of sorts here to try to get some grasp on the essence of what sin is about, how it came about, how it came into the world, and now having gotten that perspective on it, we're ready to move forward and see more of what he has to tell us about sin and God's wonderful solution to it. Join me next time, Lord willing, we'll continue to examine these verses in Romans and gain more insight into this very real issue of sin and its consequences in the world in which we find ourselves. God bless.